This is a recreation of the first part of a Taisho given on the 27th of March 2018, uh, which was the second in a series on our full ancestral line. And in this talk, we look at uh, Ananda and Shanavasa. And the part that didn't record was the biographical material on Ananda. Uh, Ananda was born on the same day as the Buddha's Great Awakening. So he was thought to have this very intimate connection with the Buddha because of this. He was the Buddha's cousin. He, his father was a brother of King Suddhodana. Um, and he was uh, so his first cousin and also one of the, his ten, the Shakyamuni Buddha's ten principal disciples. And uh, sometimes he was referred to as the guardian of the Dharma uh, because he had an extraordinary memory. Uh, all the sutras start with the words, thus have I heard. And these are the words of Ananda before he recited the teachings of the Buddha uh, word to, for word, it is said. He first did this at the first uh, Buddhist council. <coughs> And it's also related that not only did he remember all the, the sutras uh, word for word, but also the, the, um, the way they were recited, the, the way they were taught, um, the, the, the phrasing and the, um, the emphasis, the gestures that the Buddha made. So he was really, um, he had this extraordinary recall. He was the Buddha's personal attendant from um, the 20th year of the Buddhist dispensation, the 20th year of his teaching, right through until his Paranirvana. He was uh, praised and uh, by the Buddha in various ways. Um, he was named prime in conduct, in service to others, and of course power and memory. Not only was Ananda um, absolutely key in, in remembering the teachings of the Buddha, he also played an important role in the ordination of women. Uh, the Buddha's aunt and stepmother, Prajna, uh, Maha Prajapati, came to the Buddha and asked three times uh, for her and, and um, her followers to be allowed uh, to be ordained by the Buddha. And each time the Buddha said no. Um, and it was Ananda who, after these three rejections, approached the Buddha and asked him a very pointed question. He asked the Buddha if women were equal to men possessing the potential for awakening. And the Buddha had to say that they, they did possess this potential. And it was on, on the, this basis that um, he relented and changed his mind and then allowed the, the, the women's order to be formed and welcomed the women into the, into the um, homeless Sangha. Um, later on, Ananda paid for this championing of women. Um, he was um, quite strongly criticized by other monks in in the in the uh, bhikkhu sangha one of the most poignant things about him is that 
despite having this intimate relationship with the Buddha, being with him day after day, day in, day out, just taking care of him in many ways, um, he did not realize full awakening before the Buddha died. And also, of course, in spite of his um, photographic memory, his, his perfect recall of all the teachings, he was not he had not come to awakening. In fact, he was going to be excluded from uh, that first council as he was not yet an Ahat at that point. And we're told that he um, intensified his efforts in his meditation um, on the eve of this uh, council, the holding of this council, and uh, achieved Ahaship. And this was something that the Buddha um, had predicted that he would achieve Ahaship. So he had this um, uh, prediction of the Buddhas to, to encourage him on. The Buddha had said he would do this because of his, the purity of his heart. He's said to have been um, very attractive physically, having beautiful features, and uh, it's quite frequent that in uh, Chinese uh, on Chinese altars there might be a, a Shakyamuni Buddha in the center, and then to either side Mahakashapa and Ananda, and uh, it's always easy to tell um, the two apart because. Ananda um, is always depicted as being very um, young-looking, smooth-faced, um, and Anan and uh, Mahakashapa, Mahakashapa is always as depicted as having um, a lined, wrinkled face, the face of a, an old person, and he was in fact um, older than the Buddha. But in the stories uh, about Ananda, he's, he's depicted as someone um, uh, with imperfections, a, a very human uh, depiction. And many of the characters in the, in the early stories um, are shown in, as being very heroic, um, with extraordinary accomplishments. Uh, but Ananda is shown having having uh, ordinary human feelings. Um, he mourns he mourns the Buddha um, at his death, and also um, same at the, the death of Shariputra, um, who was a close friend, a mentor to him. There um, are some verses in the Teragata which are attributed to. Uh, Ananda. In this Teragata, we've we've come across in a previous talk the Terigata, which is the verses of the the women elders. The Teragata is uh, the poems of the of the uh, the monks, the male elders, and um, this is this is the three verses that are attributed to Ananda. All. 
All the directions are obscure. The teachings are not clear to me. With our benevolent friend gone, it seems as if all is in darkness. For one whose friend has passed away, one whose teacher is gone for good, there is no friend that can compare with mindfulness of the body. The old ones have all passed away. I do not fit in with the new. And so today I muse alone like a bird who has gone to roost. Now we're not told um, when these verses were uh, made, but we could understanding them, understand them as being at uh, each of them being at a different time. The first one um, sounds like it's after, shortly after the Buddha's Parinirvana, when Ananda is still. Um, uh, very vulnerable, very uh, affected by the death. The second one, so that's the one all directions are obscure, the teachings are not clear to me. With our benevolent friend gone, it seems as if all is in darkness. So he seems in the depths of grief at that point. But then the second one is different. He says, for those whose friend has passed away, one whose teacher is gone for good, there is no friend that compare can come there is no friend that can compare with mindfulness of the body. This one seems like he's come out of his grief a little bit and is seeing a way forward. And that way forward is uh, mindfulness. Just being with whatever is going on at any given moment in the body mind. And the last one could be later still, when he's uh, himself uh, an elderly man, possibly. The old ones have all passed away. I do not fit in with the new. And so today I muse alone, like a bird who has gone to rest. But this one isn't, doesn't seem to be wrapped by pain. It seems uh, poised uh, at rest. Like a bird, he says he's like a bird who has gone to roost. He's um, contained, uh, it seems to me, here in this one. So that there seems to be a progression. It's not just uh, mournfulness here, which um, some, some commentators have suggested. So now, um, just to turn to um, two koans in which Ananda appears. We have our one from the Dekoroku, but we'll look at that one um, second. The first one, just to have a brief look at, is from the Mumon Khan. It's number 32, and um, it's called A Non-Buddhist Questions the Buddha. People hearing all, all right with this helicopter overhead for the past 10 minutes? Okay, see some nods, good. Well, just signal me if you're having any trouble. Um, I'll, just read, I'll just read the case in this, um, this koan. A non-Buddhist once asked the world-honored one, that's the Buddha, I do not ask for words. I do not ask for no words. The world-honored one just sat still. 
the non-Buddhists praised him, saying, The world-honored one, with his great compassion, has dispelled the clouds of my delusion and has enabled me to enter the way. Making a deep bow of gratitude, he departed. Ananda then asks the Buddha, What was it this non-Buddhist realized that he praised you so? The world-honored one replied, A first-class horse moves at even the shadow of the whip. Now I just um, won't go into every, every point on this koan, but just um, to bring out some, some of the points here. Um, the first one, the first one that, that comes to mind especially in the light of, of Ananda's humanness is um, the pain he's obviously feeling here when he asks about what's happened with this, this guy coming and asking for the teaching and the world honored one just sits there and then the, the non-Buddhist makes this deep bow and thanks him profusely and leaves. You can imagine Ananda and Manda's comparing mind uh, coming into, into play here. This non-Buddhist seems to have an insight, an awakening on hearing, well not even hearing the teaching of just the Buddha sitting there st still without moving and leaves enlightened, illuminated. And yet here's an Ananda for years and years been attending to the Buddha, serving him faithfully, and still he hasn't got it, he doesn't understand. And then, just to add more uh, fuel to the fire, the Buddha seems to imply a criticism of him. He says, a first-class horse moves at even the shadow of the whip. Is that what he's saying? Is, is that what he's saying to Ananda? You're, you're a second-class horse? This is one of the points to understand what he's actually saying here. In the, in the commentary, Mumon um, says, how different are they, the Buddha's disciple and the non-Buddhist? You can imagine Ananda questioning this. What's, what's wrong with me that I don't understand? Well, in one sense, they're not different at all, and in another, they're very different. What's, what's essential in, in understanding is readiness. Ananda wasn't ready at this point. But it's painful for him. Okay, and now turning to um, 
Dinko Roku, this is the transmission of light by Kazan Jokin, um, who was um, a descendant of uh, Master Dogen. So this is the only collection of koans that we work on which are uh, uh, originate Japan rather than China. And in this in this um, collection, uh, Kazan um, gives an account of um, the enlightenment or the, tr or the transmission uh, moment for all the um, the ancestors from Shakyamuni right up to um, his own teacher. So uh, they're, they're all um, of them pretty short and this one uh, with Ananda this is the Mahakashapa transmitting the Dharma to Ananda. It's the case. Ananda asked Mahakashapa, the world honored one gave you the gold brocade kesa, that's the um, formal robe the, um, that monks wear, the big version of the Raksu. The world honored ones, the Buddha, gave you the gold brocade kesa. Did he give you anything else? Kashapa said, Ananda. Ananda said, Yes, Master. Kashapa said, Now knock down the flagpole in front of the gate. And there's, there's Master Kazan, Kazan's verse. Wisteria withered, trees fallen, mountains crumbled, the valley stream swells in a torrent, sparks flash forth from the flint boulders. And this, this, this particular story also appears in the um, Mumonkan. Pretty much exactly the same exchange. Now, first of all, there's just a, a little bit of background here that. Um, up until the, the sixth ancestor, Hui Nung, uh, the transmission of the Dharma was given expression by passing on of the Buddha's robe and bowl from, from uh, master to disciple. So the, 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 big, the bowl out of which um, a monk would eat plus the, the robe. And so when Ananda asks this question, so you got this, you got the robe, you got the kesa from the Buddha. Did he give you anything else? So he's really asking, well, about what Mahakashapa received 
from the Buddha? Did he did he get anything? Did anything get get passed along with that that robe? And then Kashapa's answer is very interesting. He says he just he just calls Ananda by name. Ananda, yes, Master, replies Ananda. And there's no gap there between that the call and the response. That's that's Mahakashapa's answer to the question. And then Kashapa says, now knock down the flagpole in front of the gate. And again, you need a little bit of um, background information on this. That um, in temples, when they were having teaching, the the a flag would be raised in front of the temple to let people know that the master was going to give the teaching. Or if two masters were debating, then they would each have a flag raised for the debate. And then, um, according to one account, the, 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 the winner's flag would be left up and the, lose, the loser's flag of the debate would be taken down. But um, Kashapa here doesn't say, now go down, take the flag down, which you might think he might say, but he, he, he says for, for um, Ananda to go and knock down the flag pole. So this is another point of, of this koan. What is he talking about? What is he saying? What's the subtext here? Or what we we might think, um, we might guess that he, um, if you're taking down the pole, that the flags go on. Maybe he's saying no more tashos are needed here, or no more tashos are going to be given. It's said that that on his making the statement, um, Kashapa had a deep ex understanding experience. Another way we could we could understand this even more metaphorically is um, Mahakashapa um, really um, expressing what Ananda already knows now that what we what's required of us is is to knock down all our, our notions about ourselves. All our ideas, if, if we have an insight, all our ideas of having attained something. All our cherished self-images, all our, our treasured beliefs. Even our attachment to our teacher and to the sutras and, and to the Buddha even. 
everything to just knock it all down. Master Kazan offers a, a wonderful verse here. He says, Wisteria withered, trees fallen, mountains crumbled, the valley stream swells in a torrent, sparks flash forth from the flint boulders. So the first two lines just paint this picture of, of desolation, withered vines, fallen trees even crumbled mountains. We think of mountains as being, as being uh, eternal almost, and yet they too are crumbling. Um, and they get lower, mountains get lower and lower as they, as they wear away like the, the mountains of Australia, which are so ancient. But then, the second two lines, the valley stream swells in a torrent, sparks flash forth from the flint boulders. Out of this desolation, out of this, um, everything knocked down, everything unraveled. There's this, this great stream flowing forth, swelling, and sparks flashing from the rocks. Think of that um, that um, statement by uh, Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. Well, we have one in, in, in Zen, which is uh, expressing very much the same kind of thing. Without enduring the cold that bites into the bones, how could the plum blossoms regale you with their piercing fragrance? And one story has it that Ananda was with, with Mahakashapa for 20 years before this exchange happened. So he was 25 years with the Buddha and then 20 years with Mahakashapa. That's the, that's the Mahayana version of the story anyway. Without enduring the cold that bites into the bones, how could the plum blossoms regale you with their piercing fragrance? People who've lived in, in northern um, continental places can, can appreciate this. If you, you live through cold winters, how exquisite it is when uh, spring comes and things, life comes back.
so that's that's enough on Amanda. Um, the next um, one is Shanavasa, of course, a disciple of Ananda and considered to be the third ancestor in Zen. Third ancestor from Shakyamuni. I think people generally know a lot less about Shanavasa, but um, certainly I learned quite a few things that I didn't know before about him. So he's come to life for me. And some of them um, uh, you won't forget. The first one is that um, he's said to have stayed in the womb for six years. <laughs> and um, might, might ring a bell six years because that's the amount of time the Buddha spent from when he left home to when he came to awakening. So um, we can perhaps connect it up with, with the process of um, um, maturation or spiritual um, death and rebirth, you could say. Um, and um, we we'll see that, that often these stories have a lot of the, these mythical elements. Um, another one in, in the case of Shanavasa is that his name is the name of a plant. And this plant was a, a kind of grass that is said to only grow and to grow in, in um, uh, pure areas. I'm not quite sure what that means. But it would only grow in those areas when uh, a great sage or an ahat was about to be born. And apparently this grass grew at Shanavasa's birth. And so he was given the name of the grass. Um, so so um, miraculous birth is one of the things that is often told of the hero. So these, these ancient masters are kind of like our spiritual heroes. We can um, hopefully get a, a kind of subliminal uh, in, uh, encouragement from these, these deep images that are part of these stories. One commentator talking about this, this grass growing said, um, somehow his birth is recognized by the universe itself. It's a lovely image. Ah, a universe going, ah, another sage, a great sage come to us. Um, and it's not, not so uh, strange really because we, we are this universe. So, um, each of us is an expression of the, of the whole universe in its entirety. We're also told that one day when the Buddha was teaching, he saw this very lush forest um, with very, very um, dense and luxurious vegetation. And he predicted that 100 years from, from that point, Shanavasa would teach there in this forest. So Shanavasa, like the Buddha, is associated with forests and trees. Um, people probably know that the Buddha, um, um, his mother gave birth to him, uh, clinging, to, clinging with one hand to a tree. He came to awakening under a tree, and he died under two trees, two sal trees. So trees are very important, and they have multiple layers of meaning. 
Um, but of course, one is the one that we're looking at in talking about this chant, which is family trees. And then we're told that later, when Shanavasa did enter this particular forest, um, it was uh, occupied and ruled over by um, one or two dragons, and that um, he's, um, he subdued, subdued these dragons, and um, they ended up both taking refuge in the Buddha Dharma and offering the forest, this piece of forest or jungle, to Shanavasa for, the, for um, a temple to be built there. Um, in the West, dragons are often quite negative um, beings and heroes come along and, and slay them, cut their heads off and rescue maidens from them. But in the East, they're much seen much more as benevolent um, forces, though unruly ones who need to be tamed. So generally they're not slaughtered, but rather um, subdued, taught. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a different way, it's a different relationship to nature, you could say, that, that um, in the East there's more of a, a sense that human beings are fulfilled in nature and nature is fulfilled in the human, uh, rather than a, an antagonistic kind of um, approach to them. So um, now just turning to um, the Denkaroku and um, the transmission by um, of Ananda to Shanavasa of the Dharma. Shanavasa asked Ananda. What is the fundamental unborn essence of all things? Ananda pointed to the corner of Shanavasa's kesa, his robe. So, so the robe is featuring in this one too. Again, Shanavasa asked him, what is the essential nature of the supreme way of all Buddhas? Ananda tugged at the corner of Shanavasa's kesa. Shanavasa at once had great enlightenment. And then the verse. <clears throat> From a 10,000 foot cliff, waters of no source, piercing rocks, scattering clouds, gushing forth, snow flies and flowers scatter at random, one strip of white silk beyond dust and rubbish. So just to have a look first at this exchange. Shanavasa asks, what is the fundamental unborn essence of all things? This, this term, the unborn, would later be taken up by um, uh, great Japanese uh, master, Bankei. It's sort of his, whole, his whole teaching was expressed through this, this, this term, the unborn. The unborn and the undying. Is the un fundamental unborn essence of all things. And um, Master Kazan, in his commentary, 
he, he says, what kind of thing is the original unborn nature of all things? This is truly a question no one had ever asked. Shanavasa alone asked it. There is no one who was not born with this original unborn nature of all things, but no one knows it and no one asks about it. Why is it called unborn nature? Even though the myriad things are born from it, this nature is not something which is born, so it's called unborn nature. It is wholly the original unborn. Mountains are not mountains and rivers are not rivers. Therefore, Ananda pointed to the corner of Shanavasa's robe. Often, often it's birth and death. It's, it's, it's the pain and the suffering of change and loss that bring us to, the pra to this practice. And so it, it naturally comes with that, that kind of suffering to question, well, what is it that is beyond birth and death? What, is there something beyond birth and death? Is there something that I can rely on? What, what can I rely on? What, what is it that, that, that um, isn't subject to um, impermanence? So what is, is a, one of the points of this koan is what is um, Ananda saying when he points to the corner of Shanavasa's kesa, his robe? Shanavasa presses on, he says to him again, it's really asking the same question again, what is the essential nature of the supreme way of all Buddhas? What's at the core? And this time Ananda tugs at the corner of Shanavasa's kesa. What's that about? What is it that right there, as they sit face to face, what is it that is unborn and undying? What is it? It's said that Shanavasa um, attained great enlightenment on experiencing this tug. A little bit more from, from Master Kazon. And he's talking directly to his assembly um, at this point. He says, you should use this story to clarify the fact that you must not practice Zen aimlessly and spend your whole life in vain. 
Do not vainly express naturalistic views or put your own individual views first. You may think the way of the Buddha ancestors distinguishes individuals and capacities. We are not up to it. Such a view is surely the stupidest of stupid views. Who among the ancients was not a body born of a mother and a father? Who did not have feelings of love and affection or, feeling, or thoughts of fame and fortune? However, once they practiced, they practiced thoroughly and achieved enlightenment. From India to Japan, throughout the different times of the true Dharma, counterfeit Dharma and collapsed Dharma, these are, come from um, Buddhist uh, cosmology in terms of different ages that, that um, cycle, we cycle through. So in these different ages, there were enough holy and wise men to overflow the mountains and oceans. Sorry, say that again. Enough holy and wise men to overflow the mountains and oceans have realized the result of enlightenment. Thus, you monks who possess sight and hearing are no different from the ancients. Wherever you go, it can be said that you are this complete person and you are Kashapa and Ananda. There is no difference in the four great elements and the five, great, and five aggregates. So how are you different from the ancients as far as the way is concerned? And these are, these are the things which we're said to be made up of, the four great elements as earth, air, fire and water, so solid, um, um, gaseous, um, heat and uh, liquid. And the five aggregates, that's the skandhas, so that's the basically a body and mind. So he's saying, these are always the same. So how can you say or make the excuse that you're, you're different from the ancients? So he's, he's just um, wanting the monks to really um, take up these questions, to really ask them with the whole being. Time is nearly up. Um, just want to finish with um, uh, one of my favorite passages from the um, cosmologist Brian Swim. And this was really just, I was reminded of it um, because of, I think, because of Kazan's verses here on these two koans, especially the one on. Um, uh, Ananda's awakening. Wisteria withered, trees fallen, mountains crumbled. The valley stream swells in a torrent. Sparks flash forth from the flint boulders. But also from the one for Shanavasa. From a 10,000 foot cliff, waters of no source. Piercing rocks, scattering clouds, gushing forth. Snow flies and flowers scatter at random. One strip of white silk beyond dust and rubbish. They both have these, these contrasting images of, of vitality and movement uh, and uh, desolation, or in the case of the first one, and, and purity or, or um, um, perfection in the second. And, and so just to finish off um, with this passage from um, The Hidden Heart of the Cosmos, 
and he's talking here about um, uh, the, the, the viable void that the universe emerges from, I'd say. Discussions concerning the vacuum sometimes point to the regions between the superclusters as the best approximation of, to a pure vacuum, and this is a reasonable way to proceed. Certainly, matter and energy are extremely rare in, between, rare in between the clusters of galaxies, but the unfortunate consequence of speaking in these terms is to give the idea that the vacuum is far away, and this is simply not true. The vacuum is everywhere, and the place I want to refer to in discussing the vacuum is the space right in front of you. In order to bring the idea home, cup your hands together and reflect on what you are holding there. What are the contents cupped by your hand? First, in quantitative terms, would be the molecules of air the molecules of nitrogen, oxygen, carbon dioxide and other trace gases. There would be many more than a trillion, a billion trillion. If we imagine removing every one of these atoms, we would be left holding extremely small particles such as neutrinos from the sun. In addition, there would be radiation energy in the form of invisible light, such as the photons from the original flaring forth of the universe, or from Andromeda galaxy and other sources. In order to get down to nothingness, we would have to remove not only all the subatomic particles, we would also have to remove each and every one of those invisible particles of light. But now, imagine we have somehow done this, so that in your cupped hands there are no molecules left, and no particles and no photons of light. All matter and radiation have been removed. No things would be left, no objects, no stuff, no items that could be counted or measured. What would remain would be what we modern peoples refer to as the vacuum, or emptiness, or pure space. Now for the news. Careful investigation of this vacuum by quantum physicists reveals the strange appearance of elementary particles in this emptiness. Even where there are no atoms and no elementary particles and no protons and no photons, suddenly elementary particles will emerge. The particles simply foam into existence. I understand how bizarre and far-fetched this might sound for anyone learning it for the first time but there is simply no way to dis make this discovery reasonable. Most of us have Newtonian minds with a built-in prejudice that thinks of a, the vacuum as dead. If we insist that the only, materi only material is real, that the vacuum is dead and inert, we will have to find some way to keep ourselves ignorant of this deep discovery by the physicists. Particles emerge from the vacuum. They do not sneak in from some hiding place when you're not looking, nor are they bits of light energy that have transformed into protons. These elementary particles crop up out of the vacuum itself. That is the simple and awesome discovery. I am asking you to contemplate a universe where somehow 
being itself arises out of a field of fecund emptiness. The more carefully we study the universe, the stranger it gets. This emergence of particles out of a non-visible field is not some unusual event taking place off in the regions in between the superclusters of galaxies. This radical emergence takes place throughout the entire universe. The reason it took us so many millennia to discover this process is its subtlety. It takes place at a realm far more subtle than that which our eyes can detect. The usual process is for particles to erupt in pairs that will quickly interact and annihilate each other. And annihilate each other. Electrons and positrons, protons and antiprotons. All of these are flaring forth and is quickly vanishing again. Such creative and destructive activity takes place everywhere and at all times throughout the universe. The ground of the universe then is an empty fullness, a fecund nothingness. Even though this discovery may be difficult, if not impossible to visualize, we can nevertheless speak a deeper truth regarding the ground state of the universe. First of all, it is not inert. The base of uni the universe is not a dead, bottom-of-the-barrel thing. The base of the universe seethes with creativity, so much so that physicists refer to the universe's ground state as space-time foam. Or we could say the unborn and the undying. Form is emptiness, emptiness is form. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. <clears throat>